This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. This is a science show. I'm Dr. Shane. A big hello to everyone listening live and also to those who are podcasting the program sometime in the future. In the studio with me is Dr. Catherine. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? I'm very well, thank you. Pleased to be back for my first show for the year. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, Yeah. see, it feels like I've been doing it forever this year. Actually, it's only three weeks, but, you know, it's uh, once we get into the swing of things, time goes fast. Well, welcome back. Thank you very much. Dr. Linden. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? Same for you? Yeah, same for me. It feels like it's been a long time for me. First, First week back in the studio for 2018. I know. Wow. Oh, Excited here. to be here, though. It's going to yeah. be a good show. It will I, be. I, I'm still catching up with the fact that it is 2018. Like, I, I put a thing on Facebook the other day, and I said, you know, blah, 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 2017, and then someone said, hey, dude. <laughs> and I was like, well, it's only Feb. Come on. Give me a break. And in the studio with us is Dr. Elaine, and now she's been a guest a few times on the show, and she's going to join us, hopefully, as a guest for the coming year. How are you, madam? Very good. Thank you, Dr. Shane. Now, uh... We should just give people a little bit about your background. You're a speech pathologist with a specialty in stuttering. Mm-hmm. Yes, so I am. So we're all being as careful to enunciate things as as we possibly can. I can't even get that out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's very I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of speech pathologists. When I was a kid, I had a mad lisp, ah. a lisp, I would say twisties in all the school photos. So I am indebted to a speech pathologist friend allowing me to talk on the radio now. Yeah, so well. I, thank yeah, you. You're doing <laughs> very well. And is, just on that, the word lisp, that's cruel, isn't it? The <laughs> it, word itself? It is a little bit, yes, indeed. And all too often it'll be the case when children do come into clinic and they need help with their articulation um, that it will be the first letter of their name that quite often they're having the most difficulty Aww. with. Oh, dear. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. rough. All right, let's get into some science news because we do have a couple of amazing guests. I actually believe they're superstars of science, technology, engineering, STEM. Let's just say STEM. Why do we put the maths in there? Anyway, uh, let's get into some news before we have our guests in the studio. Dr. Catherine, you're first. Thank you, Dr. Shane. So I've been reading recently about a topic that has been heavily debated over the last five to ten years, and that is what is the impact of social media, what impact is social media having on our relationships, and in particular our direct face-to-face um, interactions and relationships while people are spending so much time on their phones or computers or, mm. or laptops. And this is a big question. Um, I'll remind you that Facebook... Facebook started back in 2004, and that's the most commonly used social media medium across the world. And social media use has risen steadily over that time. And in fact, in this year, it's estimated that over 200 million Americans use Facebook, 70% on a daily basis, and the average time is 50 minutes per day. 50 minutes a day? Every people that people are using Facebook, so that's more time than they're spending reading or exercising combined. It's unbelievable. It's it's interesting given... When you check something, it might only be 10 seconds worth. So that means if you add that up, yep, that's right. if you count the number of times they go onto it, not just the, the sheer amount of time, but, you know, that's a lot of times, you know, like five times a minute, you know, times, what, 50-odd minutes, you know, you're it's talking about a lot of... a yeah. huge amount of time. And if that's during work hours, you wonder about work efficiency mm. and things. Mm. I don't know the Australian data, but, but that's, I imagine it's not too different. So it's a big problem. And what people have been worried about is this theory called social displacement, which is when individuals theoretically could spend more time on the internet and therefore spend less time with their face-to-face interactions with close family mm. and friends. And this theory is thought to develop over years. So it doesn't just happen on a one-off day. It slowly occurs over 
years. And this is thought to occur because despite having communication opportunities on Facebook and social media, that people then are actually spending less time in, in face-to-face contact and this can impact on psychological well-being. But th- this has been argued a lot in, in, um, in the literature, but has very poor quality evidence and really conflicting evidence. So this month in the Journal of Information, Communication and, Sci- and Society, there was some research out of the University of Kansas that were looking to address this issue. And they conducted two studies to investigate the hypothesis that social media use decreases social interaction, and that okay. can lead to a decrease yep. in wellbeing. So the first study was a longitudinal study using a very large data set of just under 3,000 people who conducted surveys in 2009 and 2011 and this was the peak time of Facebook use and they looked at their social media use and also their relationships and well-being and in fact in this first study they found that increased social media use over time was not associated with a decreased direct social contact time so they they proved that hypothesis wrong Mm. they also found that increased social media use over that time positively predicted psychological well-being not decreasing it so again proving that theory wrong and then in the second study, they looked at the, the final thing they looked at was they had 62 people who they sent text messages to five times a day for five days. So they were really, um, really accurately measuring what they actually did. And they surveyed them to say, are you using social media? Who are you speaking to? What are you doing? And they found that social media use at prior times in the day didn't actually influence their relationships or direct contact later in the day. So the, these studies are, are big numbers across the board and actually disprove those theories that we thought were true. It just doesn't seem right, does it? I, yeah. I hear that and I go, really? I, yeah. I don't want to be a skeptic. I don't want to be mm. one of these people who doesn't believe in climate change. But on that one, I'm not so sure. So you said 2009 to 2011. 11, the first study, yes. So mm. I remember seeing, I can't remember the stats, but uh, in 2011, the majority of people were still getting their news from traditional news sources, yeah, right? Yeah. That was 2011. But fast forward to 2016, 2017, more than half of people, their primary news source is social media. So I wonder how much, if you were to repeat that study now, whether you'd still get the same results, really. And, and, and our phone... Oh, sorry, Catherine, go ahead. And in fact, what they think, if this is true, they actually think people have replaced time that they would spend reading a newspaper with time on social media. So, you know, if you think back 20 years ago, people would, would, would spend time reading a paper newspaper. You still have contacts with people. Mm. That mm. that maybe is the time that people have replaced in their day. Oh, look, I know a whole lot of people who've replaced time they should spend watching the road <laughs> with time on social <laughs> yeah. media. I mean, that's, that's, there's no study that's going to convince me otherwise of that. Mm. You, it's funny that it used to be if you saw someone who left a big gap between them and the person in front of them on the freeway, that was usually my parents, right? You know, the, the sort of more cautious drivers because they had experience, they knew what could happen. But now, it's the people on the phones. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, what? You know, this is not... It's, it's really, it's interesting though, this is the sort of work they'll have to keep updating because also the technology has changed a lot since then you know it's um i remember the sort of phone i had back in 2009 it was like mm, barely didn't really do much social media stuff on that one um could have been because it was a captain kirk flip phone but um the you know the ones today they just do everything for us so. yeah, and the scientist in me wants to know more like mm. what were the ages of the people yeah. they were surveying and did they just look at facebook or twitter, twitter and the whole instagram yeah. and all those other ones you know so in these studies they were generally people in their 30s so and you 
you do wonder about younger people in teenage years, potentially who you think are at risk, but um, they used the data they had available from that time. But the more recent one was 2015, so it's a bit closer. Mm. But I think looking across the age groups would be very interesting, different cultures, different countries. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot that you could unpack in this. Yeah. Come on, Australia. <laughs> we can do it. We can be topping the world at being socially backward because of Facebook. We, we're really good at that sort of stuff. Some more news, Dr. Lynn. What do you got? Well, I have a bit of a question, and actually it's not really related at all, but it does follow on in that it's uh, studies that you think, oh, really, maybe mm. we should look into that a little bit more. What do you guys think climate change would do to lightning? Is that a question mm. you've ever considered before? Well, I probably should have, but I hadn't. Well, I saw, I saw a study recently, which I reported on here, which threw me, and that was that you could you could track the location of lightning across the Atlantic based on shipping lanes. Oh, I've seen that study. It was yep. wild, right? So there was more lightning where the shipping lanes occurred because of the atmospheric pollution in those regions. Well, it says one study. says one study, yeah. 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 So it, it's an interesting question. I would have thought... Um, Hmm. I don't know. Exactly, yeah, right? Because so, there's so many parameters. You know, so lightning you... is, is quite important. Obviously, uh, it can cause a lot of bushfires and it mm. can be dangerous to people's health and also infrastructure and that kind of stuff. But lightning is also very important for atmospheric chemistry, atmospheric composition, mm, yep. because lightning bolts uh, create uh, nitrous oxide, which then interacts with ozone and methane. Ozone in the stratosphere, good for us, protects us from UV rays, those kinds of things. Ozone in the troposphere, so the... Bad. The uh, top, yep. the bottom 10 kilometres of the atmosphere, bad. It's a greenhouse gas. Mm. So the majority of studies into this, what's going to happen with lightning and climate change, has suggested that lightning is going to increase with climate change, right? Uh, by 2100, uh, some studies suggest 15, 16% increase. In is that, is that just the equals more dramatic weather? Kind of tick, well, or is it so something the majority of these studies have used a metric about height of clouds. Okay, right. So your taller cloud, your bigger storms. You know those huge storm clouds that you get with the big anvil on the top. They uh, generally are the ones that produce the lightning. It's pretty well known that uh, more heat, more energy in the system is going to mean a higher kind of tropopause, where the clouds reach sort of reach that lid and they can't get Stop. any further. Yep. So if it's higher, there's going to be a bit more energy, it's going to be more lightning. But a new study that came out this week in Nature Climate Change from researchers in the UK suggests that looking at lightning in this way doesn't consider the interaction of the ice particles within the clouds because ice particles and how they move together, they're the ones that actually collect the um, electric um, the charge. charge. Yeah, right. And if you don't consider that, then you're not really getting the full picture. So these guys used a slightly different method of calculating what's going to happen and they suggest that there's going to be a 15% decrease wow. in the amount of lightning yeah. that we're going to get. Now, the majority of the difference that they found between the two methods is in the tropics, uh, but actually using the cloud top method compared to the the ice method showed very different results in Australia, for example, mm, an mm. increase or a decrease. Uh, so this, I don't know, I was fascinated by this to think that this is it's a really important thing on lots of different levels, and but it's also affected by little small interactions in the mm. atmosphere that are still mm. hard, even with the excellent models that we have to, to model out and still lots of different ways of looking at it. So putting it in the more research needs to be done, we need to look at it in a different way kind of category. I, I just absolutely love these stories. And I think I read that one during the week and you know, some sort of vaguely read part of it. But the, I remember yourself and Ailey taught me last year that, you know, this whole question of hurricanes and cyclones and whether you get more or less and warmer water being the engine of hurricanes says more but 
low wind shear says, you know, says more, but we're going to get higher wind shear presumably mm. with climate change. So that would mean less. So you've got more from the warm water, less from the wind shear. Oh, what does that mean? And you, you don't really know the outcome. Is that... No, I was going to say, Dr. Linden, along those lines, when we're worried about more and, and how is it quantified? Are we worried about number of lightning strikes or the power of them? What's the concern? Yeah, so this one, from what I understand, it was the count. It's the count of lightning strikes, not so much the intensity. Mm. And, uh, they, they sort of used, used models and that's another issue as well. It's grid site, grid box sizes and all these different things and whether they're over land or over the ocean and then, uh, following on how that's going to play out in terms of how they interact with the greenhouse gases and those kinds of things. It's just fascinating stuff. I love it. Uh, well, I've got a couple of very quick news pieces yeah. for you. One is um, I want to talk about K2, not the mountain. No, K2 being um, the Kepler probe's mission K2. So you may remember a few years back, um, Kepler, which is the satellite that basically um, looks at a whole range of stars. In fact, originally it was looking at 100,000 stars all at once, and it was looking for these subtle dimming in the light from the stars and it would determine if there was a planet going around that far distant star it would then take that data send it to a ground-based telescope that star would be studied and they'd work out whether it was a real what's called the transient or or whether it was just some sort of bit in noise or whatever or something else going on and so it's literally found you know thousands of non-solar based planets um, as a result of this mission but sadly um, the uh, in 2013 there was sort of a, a really severe mechanical failure from this this particular probe and it's you know it was like ah, that's it and everyone was very upset however some very very smart um, engineers and astronomers worked out a way to keep it kind of going and they called this mission k2 so it was like you know version number two and it's actually just um released uh, confirmed uh, 100 new exoplanets in Ooh, the last wow. month or so so these are ones that you know they've they've been sighted by this craft and then they've been confirmed by one of the ground-based telescopes so i think this is one of those examples of of something where you know don't give up on on this just yet because this is super interesting it's still usable some smart engineering has managed to keep this thing going you know it's not like we could send up the space shuttle and give it a bit of a tweak mm. it was done so they've got it going. And one of the planets that they've detected actually is this extremely bright star that has a planet that orbits this star every 10 days. And the interesting thing is with this is when you have extremely bright stars, they're really important because you can learn a huge amount about them from ground-based telescopes where you don't, you know, you don't need to be out of the atmosphere. You can still see them and do a lot of work. So this is sort of pretty much the, the brightest star that's been found with orbiting planets. So K2 is still kicking on, doing really well. So that, that was... Um, every thought, 10 days. It orbits every 10 days. Do not try and imagine it. It's <laughs> full on. It's that's full on. That's the only way I can yeah, connect to this is to imagine just us spinning around a planet so fast. just zipping yeah, around just, the star. It's crazy. The year's over before you know it. Oh, my it's, goodness. Uh, and there are ones that are faster. There are ones that are faster. It's just mind-boggling oh, getting, what's out there. I'm getting motion sickness just thinking of it. Yeah. So now another study I just wanted to quickly mention, um, which has uh, been uh, released this week in current biology, is with regards to the number of orangutans um, in Borneo. And unfortunately, it looks like in the last 16 years alone, more than 100,000 orangutans have been removed from that population in Borneo. And they've basically been, they've been looking at a lot of um, data from all these different sort of surveys they do of the sort of nests or the, the sites where orangutans um, move around. And, and they looked at quite a large number of these. And of course, 
they're, they're, this reduction is caused by a couple of things. One is, you know, deforestation and so forth, which is due to palm oil and all these things that we we're trying to avoid. And that actually reduces the amount of habitat that they have. But there's another part that people forget about, and that's just the killing of orangutans, like even in the forested areas. So it's not just deforestation that's occurring. It's actually also just the killing of these animals in general. And, you know, that's due to a variety of reasons. And I think, you, you know, you have to do a lot of work on the ground to work out why people are king, killing these orangutans. But there's, you know, this is a pretty major threat to, to this species. And so this data is sort of being collected between, um, you know, 1915, I think it was. And they, they estimate, um, you know, the total upper bound of this loss was like 148,000. They sort of average it down to 100,000. But it's, it's big, it's bad, and the problem's still there. So, you What know, is that in terms of percentage of population? It must be significant. Um, look, it's, it is a significant, um, hit for the population overall, and they've made some estimates of what, um, what will happen over sort of the next, you know, 35 odd years, we'll put another 45,000. But what the biggest concern, I think, you've got to be careful when you look at these population numbers, because you look at the total population of orangutans there, and it's, it's quite a large number. Um, but when you look at the individual sort of little groupings, they start to get below what's a viable grouping size, and that's when you start seeing, you know, real cascading failure of populations and so forth. So it's not just that, you know, you may count 10,000 and say, oh, there's a, you know, that's okay, there's a 10,000 that we can work with that. But if they're in groups that are too small to be viable um, as individual groupings and they're too separated from other groupings, then the population dies Jeez, real quick. Dr Shane, I thought I was the one that brought in the depressing yes. news. Uh, you know, every now and then you've got to talk about something. I, I, I wasn't going to talk about uh, the really cool stuff people are doing on... Um, Cuttlefish, but you know that's a whole show. <laughs> cuttlefish are awesome. You need a cuttlefish um, expert in here for that, I reckon. Yeah, well, we should teach us all. Yeah, mm. cuttlefish expert because those cuttlefish and octopus, octopuses. I think is it? Yeah, that's what Didn't Dr. Ewan says. Yeah, Ewan yeah. told us the other week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so octopuses, um, amazing. Cephalopods, amazing. Anyway, folks, we're going to take a very short break, and we'll be back in just a moment with our first guest from the Peter McCallum Cancer uh, Institute. Yeah. Three, triple R. Uh, we're back. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on Three Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Dr. Claire Fidelli. She's the senior postdoctorate fellow and communications coordinator at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. Claire, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me, Shane. Look, it's great to get you in because, um, and we're going to get you back in a little bit later when we have um, our second guest in. But first of all, we're going to talk about your work. So now you work in the area of cancers and in particular on sort of improving our fundamental understanding of cancer. I suppose a lot of a lot of it's around resistance that cancer cells have. I mean, what, can you give us a bit of an update of where we are there? Because I know you often hear stories about you know cancer came back and all these things. I mean, you know, what's going on with resistance of cancer cells? Why don't, why can't we kill them off? Well, it's a great question. It's one that we're really trying to tackle. It's, it's probably the number one question we have in cancer: is how do we kill it? Mm. Um, and one of the major issues with with cancers is that it can be so different between different people. So even if you have two people that have the same type of cancer, like breast cancer or I work in, in melanoma skin cancers, if you take two people and look at their cancers, they're completely different diseases. And so what we're looking for is kind of one a one-hit approach 
what's going to kill the cancer in two different people. Mm. But we're actually dealing with different types of cancers at, mm. at their really sort of fundamental level, what's happening inside those cells that make them cancer. So is, can I ask you a question? Is, is that even true for cancers that are viral, virally caused, like um, cervical cancer and like the facial tumour cancers in um, Tasmanian devils? For, for those cancers, they're a little bit more simple mm. because we know what causes them. So we know what's called the driver of the cancer. So the driver of the cancer is what really kind of makes them go. And that's what you want to hit. You want to yep. hit that driver. Uh, so they're a little bit more simple, but they also occur on a different person's genetic background as well. So all of us are genetically different to each other. And so we already have this inherent level of kind of diversity um, and, and our bodies are different. We have different immune cells and all sorts of di- differences between us. So while they are uh, a little bit more simple, we understand them a little bit more. There's all these other factors that come into play when we're trying to deal with them in terms of treating them. So it's not just simply a matter of looking at a cancer independent of everything else. It's looking at a cancer inside a patient or inside a person, and that can be really variable. And presumably we have a lot better sort of capability in that regard now than we used to because we, we look at the genetics of the cancer as well as the patient now separately, don't we? Is that right? We look at the genetics of the cancer in conjunction with the rest of the patient. So we look at, at the patient's DNA and we also look at the DNA of the cancer that has occurred within that patient. Uh, and so we can try to understand the two elements from a genetic or DNA perspective to say, okay, well, in this, uh, in this particular person, uh, they may have had a predisposition, for example, so a, a mutation in the DNA that meant that they were predisposed to developing a cancer and then something else happened. And so we understand how those two factors have played a part or a role in, in that person's cancer. Mm. So let's talk about skin cancers for a moment because that's obviously the area you're working on primarily. Why is it that our immune system doesn't just kick these buggers? I mean, what? I mean, we, we get, I assume we get cancerous cells in our body throughout our life mm-hmm. and our immune system just says, yep, no problem, taken care of. But then we get something like like a skin cancer that we, we're talking about here and all of a sudden the immune system says, eh, I'm not going to worry about that. Well, the immune system does a great job. Uh, as you say, it sort of is a bit of a surveillance for the body and, and it is it is capable of dealing with, with some rogue cells that, that come up. The thing about cancer is it's a, it's, it's a disease of your own body. So sometimes the immune system can't really tell the difference between uh, a cell that's in your body that is a normal cell and a cell that's turned to cancer because they kind of, they can look quite similar. Uh, but it can do a pretty good job. It's a funny thing because, um, the cancers have actually developed a way of avoiding the immune System. So it's, it's not only that just generally the immune system can miss some things. Cancers have developed a way of actually putting on a bit of an invisibility cloak to the immune system. So they actually, so some cancers can actually start to express uh, a protein or, or display a protein on the outer, um, part of their, of, of the cell, uh, uh, surface that actually makes them invisible to the immune cell. So the immune cell mm. comes along, sort of docks onto the cancer and says, oh, you know, who are you? What are you doing? Uh, and the cancer cell, this protein, actually says to the immune cell, move on. It's kind of like the Jedi mind trick um, from Star yeah. Wars. It says, move along, nothing to see here. This is not the cell you're looking <laughs> yeah, for. this is not the cell you're looking for. <laughs> and the, uh, the immune cell goes, oh, okay. 
and it sort of and it moves on and and so um and so cancers have developed this ability and this is a way that a major way that they can actually evade surveillance by the immune system mm, yeah. but it is also an opportunity now for us because uh, as as people who are trying to think about new ways to treat cancer because that triggers in our mind ah maybe this is something we can come in with a treatment for to try to block this kind of invisibility do we turn off or um, interrupt that communication between the cancer cell and the immune cell so that the cancer cell is no longer able to say i'm not here and make the immune cell the, the, the part i find absolutely fascinating about this is sort of the i guess the other wheel to this which is people with um autoimmune diseases and how that interplay occurs relative to what you're trying to do here because it seems in one sense you've got the immune system attacking randomly throughout the body like parts that definitely it shouldn't be attacking mm. and then in this case you've got the immune system not attacking parts you really want it to attack yes and yeah. it, it seems as though when you know, whoever does it first, and you know, I don't really mind. Um, but the whoever works that that out, that that sort of interaction, will probably go a long way to dealing with both problems. Absolutely, and we're now starting to see a, a large overlap between different disciplines in medicine for this exact reason, because we know now that lots of different factors. So, for example, cancer uh, biologists and immunologists are now getting together um, because they know that we're sort of dealing with or tackling the same sorts of questions, mm. and we're starting to see a lot more of this what's called multidisciplinary approach. We do we love to, we love to uh, talk about that in in research. Uh, where you have basically teams of experts coming from different fields coming together and each of them contributing their own knowledge uh, to try to tackle these, as you say, big questions. Mm. So as I understand it, Dr. Clare, cancer is is quite a... Um, it's a nasty pasty and it sounds really awful and that the melanomas that you deal with, if they can adapt and develop these skills to have invisibility cloaks and as we're developing more and more sophisticated procedures to deal with them, is there a chance that they will then be able to counter-evolve and sort of develop guns underneath their invisibility cloaks for sure. lack of a better biological term for it? No, no, it's, it. it's actually pretty, it's, it's pretty spot on. We're, we're sort of we're playing a bit of tit for tat with, uh, with the cancers. So you're right, cancers are actually able to adapt very rapidly to the pressures that we can put on them. So we know that, um, we know that when we try to treat some certain types of cancers, they can uh, very quickly evade that treatment. So they, they kind of circumvent and they go, oh, I can't do what I've been doing all this time because I'm going to die if I continue to do that. So I've got to get smarter. I've got to develop ways to avoid that treatment. And so that's really a, our major challenge is trying to predict how the cancers are actually going to circumvent that ahead of time. So maybe we can come in with two drugs, three drugs, or, you know, whatever it might be to, to try to avoid this from happening. And then asking the question, well, once it does happen, what can we then do as a, as a follow up therapy to try to, to try to target those cells that have developed this way of avoiding the first type of treatment? It's very similar to, um, the development of resistance to antibiotics that bacteria, we know bacteria are very, very good at, um, developing resistance to, to these, uh, antibacterial drugs. And cancers actually do exactly the same. And it's a major, um, point of research for us and, and probably the largest challenge that we're facing for, uh, cancer treatment. 
Claire, do you think we'll ever get to a point where we will know um, some of those factors to prevent the cancer, um, you know, multiplying out of control, that people preventatively could have medicine uh, to prevent the cancer? So in the area of skin cancer, could we say that people who are particularly at risk due to the genetic factors you're, you're describing take something to prevent it actually occurring? Certainly... The next phase of research is going to really focus on preventative medicine because we're now starting to appreciate that the best way to tackle cancer and, and in fact, really any disease is to not have the disease develop in the first place. In order to do that, we really need to have a very good understanding of what happens that leads to the, to the cancers. And we, we do know a lot about cancer and we do know a lot about, again, we talk about these drivers of cancer. So what goes wrong inside the cell initially that makes it go from a perfectly normal cell to suddenly this cell that is dividing out of control. But we don't know, we also don't know a lot about it. Um, and often it can be complicated by the fact that these cancers can continuously accumulate lots of errors in their DNA as they become more and more aggressive. And so we go from sort of having, you know, one thing that goes wrong and that's probably driving it to now you've got thousands of mutations and you have to figure out, it's like a needle in a haystack, you have mm. to figure out which one is actually the baddie that we need to hit. And so certainly we're going to be concentrating on preventative medicine, uh, but we really need to understand the cancers that we're dealing with before we can. I'm just thinking about the expression of symptoms in different individuals when they have a particular cancer. And I'm wondering whether when we were speaking about this invisibility cloak a little bit earlier on, I'm wondering whether um, there, are, there are particular protective factors that different groups of people have to a particular cancer which means that their systems are more susceptible to or are more sensitive to expressing symptoms in relation to the cancer earlier than others and whether anything's been looked at comparing groups in terms of how um, how quickly they they might respond or how quickly they might show some sort of symptom so I guess is this uh, I guess that's a question around um, time to diagnosis so do some people get diagnosed earlier because they have symptoms rather than others um, it's a it's a really good question actually uh, I've not looked too much into the question about um, the presence or the development of symptoms with respect to a person's sort of individual uh, context but of course if, if you think about it it, it makes sense that different people are going to present differently uh, with symptoms based on well not only what's happening in their bodies but also the way that the cancer is actually developing within each organ that they that where, where they might be developing cancer so obviously um, people who develop cancers in different organs are going to present with different symptoms um, depending on how that cancer is affecting the organ but even within a single organ you can have cancers that are small um, and that can sit there for a long time and not actually um, not actually present with any symptoms because it's not affecting the function of the organ. Um, you can have other cancers that are really, you know, have some fundamental uh, interruption of the function of that organ and you can get symptoms through that. Claire, it's great talking to you about this. We're going to get you back in after our guest because we uh, we know you went to Science Meets Parliament last, uh, last few days, so we'll chat a bit more about that. Thanks for telling us more about the cancer stuff, though. I mean, it's really interesting. I always think cancer is such a, a good sort of um, cell 
model of evolution. I mean, it just is extraordinary how bloody good it is mm-hmm. at doing what it does relative to the rest of the cells in our body. Like, it's almost like the best part of us, even though it kills us. You know, it's awful. So, absolutely, yeah, it's yeah. it's 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 a fascinating area, um, evolution within cancers and other diseases, and we're, mm. we're really just trying to, or we're really just tackling it now. Yeah, thanks so much for coming in. We'll we'll get you back in a few minutes, though. Pleasure. So don't don't run away. <laughs> Folks, um, we do have a uh, subscriber giveaway if you're um, so inclined and you've subscribed to Triple R. I've got four double passes to give away to a special subscriber screening of the film The Square. It's going to be at Cinema Nova on Wednesday, the 21st of Feb at 6.30. Uh, it stars Elizabeth Moss, Dominic West and Clace Bang, and it tells the story of... Christian, uh, the respected curator of a contemporary art museum whose latest exhibition is themed around altruism. The resulting PR campaign for the installation sends both Christian and the museum into an existential crisis. Anyway, if you ring up uh, Triple R now, uh, Liv will be uh, taking your calls. Uh, we have four double passes to give away. Uh, I'll give you some uh, think and music, Liv, uh, so you can take those calls. I think that, yep, the phones are lighting up. We'll be back in just a moment. We're going to be talking with Dr. Karen Lamb about biostatistics. Three, triple, ah. Yeah, we're back. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 Triple R. If uh, you're still thinking of getting those tickets stopped because I think uh, Liv's been overwhelmed by calls out there and she hasn't come back, so <laughs> we'll get her back soon. In the studio with us now, there is Dr. Karen Lamb. She's been on the show before. She's a statistics legend from Deakin University. I'm sure there's a proper title that you'd love to tell me. But uh, welcome back, Karen. Thanks for having me back in the show. I really appreciate it. Look, it's good to have you in because um, I think I said this before. You're the first uh, biostatistician that hasn't put me asleep. And, no pressure there, then. And, you know, to all the other <laughs> biostatisticians I've interviewed, I'm sorry, but, you know, facts are facts. It's, it's just the way it is. Um, and you're doing so much interesting work at the moment. Every time I see you on Twitter, I think, geez, you know, it's another thing. I don't know how you fit it all in. But some of the work you're doing at the moment with regards to sort of our, our, our health, you know, our health and our environment is just fascinating. Can you just talk us through this? Because it, it involves so many different fields and it's probably an approach that a lot of people haven't taken before. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, as you say, there are so many different topics I could have chatted to you about. Mm. But um, over the last eight years or so, I've been working with a lot of different people looking at how where we live influences our health and behaviour. Um, so I started embarking in this area on a project where we were looking at whether access to sports centres influences the amount of physical activity you do. And, you know, it seemed like a really easy question to answer, well, to me, naively, um, until I started to try and unpack it as I do as a statistician. So first of all, I came to it as, well, what do you mean by access? What is access to physical activity? What do we really care about here? Is it Does it have to be close to home? Is it the number you have around you? Is it something to do with cost? So even sort of defining the question itself was quite challenging. I guess beyond that, though, one of the the huge issues we have when we're looking at how the environment influences your health and behaviour is the fact we're quite often dealing with um, data at a single time point, so what we call cross-sectional data. So that's really problematic because we sometimes don't have the reasons why people choose to live in their neighbourhood to hand, and we're quite often using existing data sources, which means that we don't know if the physical activity facility itself is influencing the activity or if people are choosing to move into the neighbourhood because they have those 
behaviours anyway. Mm. So it's this whole challenge of reverse causation. So as I say, something that seemed initially quite easy to answer from a data perspective, which is what a lot of people think biostatisticians just do, we just analyse data. Actually, the complexity of defining the question and trying to answer it with the data we had available was quite challenging. So so talk us through the definition of that, that particular um, example, because I, I, you know, there's just, I'm sure, and I, I, Lyndon, because she's a data person too, you know, we, we straight away we're going to, well, hang on, you know, what parameters do you use there? Because there are so many things around real estate costs, around local schools. Did the people move there because of this or that? I, I mean, what, what do you put in, you know, how do you decide, or who decides what, what goes into one of these models to, to link health? with the locality of these things? That's a really good question, and I think that's where sometimes I rely a lot on my collaborators and colleagues to actually help define that. But I think what we came to with that was, well, what was important to the urban planners, the planners themselves? Mm. What information are they using when they're actually developing these new neighbourhoods? And can we look at it from that perspective? Because it's easy enough to just say, okay, we'll look at distance from home, but... That's a single location. Well, yeah. There's there's a lot of other factors going on. And as you correctly say, one of the issues when we were looking at the, the sports centres in isolation was we couldn't also say we only had information on that particular aspect of the environment at, for that project. We didn't have things like the number of parks in your area. So it might be that places that had more sports centres also had more parks. So that might have mm. been explaining some of the associations we got out. So now what we're trying to do with a new project that I'm involved in is actually look at what urban planning guidelines are out there for Melbourne and what people are wanting to to put in place for a livable environment and then look at environments that have those attributes. So it's not just the sports centres, it is things like your parks, your schools, your health centres and then try and look at people living in the areas that have those resources and compare it to the people that don't and try and unpack that because the real challenge in a lot of epidemiology, a lot of social epidemiology, we we can't randomise people to live in one neighbourhood or another and you know, randomized controlled trials are, are always talked about as the gold standard for trying to establish cause and effect, but we can't do this in this context. So we need to try and think of other clever ways of trying to answer these questions. So, so how do you go about pushing the validity of the work when you in health when you can't use that gold standard of a, a, a clinical trial that's randomized? I mean, what? How do you get that through the journals? That's challenging. I think it's challenging in a lot of areas of epidemiology that aren't even the the bill environment um, uh, area. But some some people, some of my colleagues have been jumping on um, opportunistic experiments or natural experiments where you actually will look at is an area creating a new sports centre or a new park and can we get a similar area with similar demographics of populations living in it and actually try and compare it that way. Still not ideal. It's a, a natural experiment. It's not a randomised trial. So we still can't say that the people are directly comparable. So we still, from the statistical perspective, we have to make sure we're collecting a lot of data on a lot of other characteristics about the individual and the environment in order to to try and make the analysis as robust as possible. But mm. that cause and effect thing is very hard. Mm. Karen, will we be looking at whether how walkable the area is that people live in, so um, beyond sort of sporting facilities and parks, but things like footpaths and how safe it is to walk at night and those features as well? Absolutely. That certainly in the, the Plan Melbourne urban planning documents is something that they're really interested in, is looking at how walkable areas are and how much people can cycle and trying to ensure that in some ways people have the resources around them that can actually get to them easily rather than be so reliant on cars. 
It's really exciting that this is happening for Melbourne. I'm wondering whether there's other cities around the world that you kind of look to as the gold standard for doing this kind of work and designing the cities based on this information. Yeah, absolutely. So some of these urban planning things come from other places like Portland. I think people look to that as, mm. you know, nice livable environments where people have, you know, their, their social community as well as access to resources that they want. And I think, you know, it's it's good to look at the planning stuff, not just from the perspective that we have a lot of population growth and so we need to have housing, but we need to make sure that we have other things in place to ensure people are leading happy and healthy lives as well as can just live. Mm. It's quite amazing when you when you compare suburb to suburb the the sort of the style and just the message that infrastructure sends. So I know not far from me there's this bus stop, and I've got to take a photo and put it on Facebook. This bus stop consists of a pole with a sign that says bus stop like that's it right yep. and then you know i travel literally two kilometers away there's this beautiful glassed in sort of cabin that you can go into and you know short of them serving lattes it's pretty flash and and you see that difference in in what's going on and just how how people interact with these simple simple things and you know you'd be far less likely in winter to go and use public transport if you you have to stand next to a pole beside a busy road compared to one where you have a nice shelter, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's got to play a major role in then into people's health as to where they yeah. work, what they'll do, where they'll drive, whether they'll cycle, whatever. And again, that's another challenge when we look at it only focusing on the data that we sometimes mm. have to hand, whereas we often have things like the density of resources or where the transport stops are. But we lack a lot of the time that qualitative information um, and we need to see what else is around and why people might not be, be using the resources that are available to them. Because as you say, it might be that it's much more appealing to sit in a bus stop when there's shelter from the Melbourne rain than if there there isn't anywhere for you to, to well, not, from it. not for you, you're from Scotland. Oh yeah, rain's <laughs> fine here. People should stop complaining. <laughs> so then Karen, will you include any kind of citizen science component in this new project where people can give you this qualitative information? At this point, we're not planning on it purely because it's not what we've seen as part of the planning documents because it does seem a lot more emphasis is on what's actually on the ground. But certainly I could imagine there could be more qualitative spin-offs from it and um, that I'm not part of myself. But certainly I think these are important things. I mean, if we find out that there's no difference in behaviours among the, the people that are living in these great areas with lots of resources and the ones that aren't, then, you know, it's important to see why that might be the case. You know, as a statistician, we deal a lot in averages, but there there are some areas where it might be working for and others that it mm. doesn't. And that's right, you know, to, to jump into the stats for a second before we get Claire back in, I, I wanted to ask you what you know, from a biostatistician, statistician's viewpoint, what is the biggest sort of challenge you see in the data? I mean, what's the thing that, you know, when you're sitting there with all your numbers, you know, as you do, um, what, I mean, what really messes with you? What's the hard part with this sort of, sort of project? Um, there's been two main challenges I've found working in this field. One is not having the long-ranging data. So we can't actually look at changes in the environment and how that can influence change in health or behaviour outcomes. And the other aspect is just, um, as I say, quite often we're using existing data sources that maybe weren't designed for purpose. So I've lacked a lot of information on why people have chosen to reside where they reside. And mm. that 
not being able to account for that um, causes problems in this area of research too. So it's really exciting to be involved in a project from in this field from the start where we're actually designing the, the study ourselves and collecting the information we want to collect. Yeah, that sounds cool. Karen, don't go anywhere because we're going to get Claire back and we're going to talk. You guys are up there just wandering around Parliament House, I think, for three or four days. Yep. So uh, we'll get Claire back in a sec and the being superstars. And um, we're going to hear all about that experience in just a moment. So, folks, uh, hang in there. You're listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3 Triple R. Three. Uh, we're back, folks. Now, we've got Claire Fideli back in the studio. Karen is also here, Karen Lamb. You guys went to uh, Science Meets Parliament, which I have to say I often think of as something akin to Mordor, Lord of Rings. You know, <laughs> that's where all the bad things... Anyway, um, Karen, I'll start with you. I mean, tell us a bit about it. What, what did you get up to? Was it all just whining and dining? No, not all whining and dining. There was a little bit of that. Oh, yeah. Um, so yeah, we got invited to come to Science Week's Parliament through the Superstars of STEM program that yep. Claire and I are part of. So, um, it was really exciting to, to get a chance to speak to people that don't speak our language. Um, so we went up to Canberra on Monday, um, for our final training workshop for Superstars where we're learning to, um, Communicate with confidence. Was that? So was that it? Were, yeah. Uh, you were good before you went. You, yeah, last time we did. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was terrible before. Oh, yeah. I went. Yeah, that was well, we can't tell. We can't tell now. Um, so yeah, so that was to help us to to get our plan of action together to go and engage with the parliamentarians. Um, so then Tuesday and Wednesday we were floating about chatting to to these MPs. A really exciting week with a lot of craziness going on this mm. week. Yeah, what, what about you, Claire? How'd you how'd you go? I thought it was, I actually found it very interesting, uh, and uh, very informative. I think the thing that I got out of it was just realizing that parliamentarians, as much as they look like something from science fiction or really scary monsters, they are just people. Uh, and I think they're trying to do a good job, but I think, you know, there's a lot of things going on in the background that means that they can't always do what they want to do. And, and our job in trying to lobby to them is, tr- is to try to make their life easier in, in them trying to actually help us. So, you know, the, the idea is perhaps, we can stand up and be stronger and in, in lobbying them to to try to get what we want. And in, in mm. terms of science, you know, scientists need to step up do a little bit. You, and, and how did you find that interaction? I mean, we we've we hear so much negativity about, for, often from scientists, about the level of funding, the longevity of funding, and so forth from you know from government. Um, but you you're in there. You're with them. I mean, what was that conversation like? Because, I mean, I can imagine part of it would be say, well, you know, we've just popped $20 billion or getting there into a medical research future fund. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you want what, Claire? <laughs> well, a lot, a lot of it was uh, around the discussion about what scientists can bring to solving Australia's problems. Mm-hmm. So it, the, the big theme of, uh, of the, the three days was about um, scientists as problem solvers and the more we have in this country contributing to this kind of, uh, uh, you know, brain mass, the, the better we are going to be at running the country and solving some of the, the big issues that we currently have. Uh, and so that was the big focus. What can we bring? Uh, a lot of it was around, of course, money. Um, the Medical uh, Research Future Fund is uh, an interesting subject. Mm. Uh, we're still not quite sure 
how it's going to be um, distributed and how those decisions are going to be made. And that's something actually we need to start asking questions of our mm. politicians. How are they going to actually be making decisions about what's going to get funded out of that out of that pool of money? Because I suppose for, for the pundits out there who are not aware how this normally happens, the, the National Health and Medical Research Council, or the NHNMRC, it has a process which is very much a peer review process for the way in which the money is handed out. And there are some priority areas that they identify, but essentially, you know, you can get money for almost anything in the field. I mean, even statisticians get money from the NHMRC, yes, don't do. they, Karen? They do. And, um, however, the MRFF is different. The MRFF is a political fund. And as I like to think of it, that's a fund that buys you votes mm. and you use it however you choose as a minister to buy you votes. And now it may well be that lots of, and we're already seeing some of this, you know, some parts of that fund have gone through peer review processes, but it's still a political fund, which means depending on who controls it on the day, it may have very different rules to, you know, what we're used to. So I, I've never been to Science Meets Parliament. For some, I've never, never been. Oh, <laughs> long time listener, I guess. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm wondering how many of the politicians sort of at the end said, oh, sweet, okay, so next time I have a question about statistics or next time I have a question about cats, I'll just give you guys a call? Or did they sort of understand a bit more about the, the network and the landscape of science? Um, that was certainly the idea to to be someone's contact point. So you know we were trying to be approachable. You, you got a very brief um, time. You got maybe about thirty minutes with a parliamentarian while you were there, where you could chat about your area of interest and what what you particularly did. Um, so we'll see we'll see how that goes. I think some conversations were more successful than than others. Um, and you know certainly some um, parliamentarians are more interested in science than others. Um, but reflecting on some of the other discussions that were going on, one of the really exciting things for me going to Science Meets Parliament was going to Press Club and seeing mm. um, our um, Science Technology Australia President um, Emma Johnson talking about what some of the challenges were in science and particularly reflecting on the short-term horizons of science and science funding and the fact we're us- losing quite a lot of mid-career scientists because, you know, you're stuck on these 12 months to maybe three-year contracts and, and that job insecurity is really challenging, particularly when a lot of science, scientific discoveries take quite a while to, to develop. So that was one one big issue. But I think also just, again, chatting about the priorities of funding, you know, so much going to defence versus so much going to, to research and where priorities lie. Um, and again, one of my interesting conversations too um, with politicians is the fact I work more in um, preventive medicine rather than cure. And I think that one's a really hard um, argument to put across too because politicians work in short time frames too for the next election and they want quicker wins than I think sometimes preventive medicine can, can have. So lots of exciting discussions, but I guess we'll have to watch this space to see what mm. happens next. There's been a pretty, pretty big uh, push over the last few years with regards to the... The way in which women are treated in in STEM in general in science uh, across the board and it, and it ranges from you know I've heard everything from why the hell do we have to submit grants right after the school holidays to you know everything else you know the availability of childcare and we see places like the Walter and Liza Hall Institute building a childcare center on their front lawn basically which is something that you don't I don't think is happy for people to correct me on this, is nowhere else in, in Australia with regards to medical research institutes. You know, great things like that happening, but there's still a lot of work. That, was that a big point of discussion, Claire, in terms of what was going on up there? Because that's that's something that, you know, if you if you think about that loss that you referred to, Karen, of, of the workforce, I mean, it's more acute 
in the female part of the workforce. So. Certainly, it was it was a big point of conversation um, of the, over across the three days. Actually, uh, was this issue of um, retention of women or lack of retention of of women? And it's not just women. The, the, mm, the same, yeah. There are there are pressures across the entire sector on both uh, males and females. But it certainly seems to hit women harder. And we we do we lose, especially out of the um, out of my field, which is in the health and medical research research fields, we see that we have a large number of women or females coming into the system. In fact, there's at the early stages, there's more females than there are mm. uh, males yeah. coming into the system, uh, and they just drop off sharply uh, at this early and mid-career phase. And the reasons for it are complex, and there are many, and you, and you mentioned some of them. Um, but we need to start focusing on now what are some solutions to this and and uh, in other fields uh, one of the issues that we're facing in terms of um, females in in uh, in industries is that they're not actually coming in at all so health medical research don't doesn't have a problem with recruiting them we have a problem with, with keeping them um, other uh, parts of the science technology engineering and maths industries can't get them in in the first place so and Karen can probably speak a bit more to the the maths and engineering side of things but there's a need to be uh, more present have females sort of at the fore so that we're more present so we can encourage mm. women to get involved or, or young girls to be involved. And that's really one of the... Well, it is the focus of um, this Superstars of STEM program that's run by Science Technology Australia is to get women out there in the public so that... Uh, young girls and young boys as well can see that there are these um, strong, intelligent leaders who are female in STEM industries. Yeah. So it's great to hear that Superstars in STEM has been renewed. I think that was announced last week at Silence Meets Parliament, right? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so they've announced that they're going to support it for the next four years and they're actually going to double the number of women they're going to recruit into the program. So they're very keen to have more people like Claire and I out there engaging with um, with the, the media and with schools to actually say, look, this is what we do. This is what you can do with a degree in biology or mathematics or physics or whatever and, and actually try and encourage both boys and girls to go into these professions. And what's the process to be selected to be involved? So when we applied, it was a short written um, application. Um, it was just, I think there were four questions to answer. You need to write very succinctly um, about why you were passionate about working in the subject you work in and, um, you know, what particular challenges you'd face yourself. And then they um, had a short list of um, 50 of us that had to put videos, a minute pitch on what your subject was and what you do. And then from that, they selected 30 of us for, for this program. And you, we've only got a minute left, but you, you started, go, you've been going out to schools and, and just about to i think some to. i think some have, some have i've yeah. not yet but yeah very keen to get into the classrooms and chat to people about the joy of statistics i just want to see that i, I think it's i mean it's great it's great to in particular though to get the just the love of mathematics forgetting stats for a second the yeah, love yeah. of mathematics and understanding of that out into schools and, and showing that you know the kids of all ages that this stuff is just bloody awesome and it's one of the few it, it still amazes me that we have such a focus on English and reading and writing, something you'll use throughout your life, but we don't treat maths with a quality to that. It's treated like a secondary issue. And we all know that actually in reality, it's sort of probably the harder of the two to really get your skills up in. If you don't do it throughout your schooling, you'll, you'll drop off very quickly. And I, I love, uh, you know, you see those things on Facebook every now and then where someone says the real reason you learnt 
long division and you see the person sitting there with their, their kid and they're teaching them long division that's you know 30 years later they've forgotten how to do it but there's so much in that i think that's um that's important claire karen thanks so much for hanging around and talking about this and it's great that uh, you know two of our great communicators are up there at science meets parliament you know showing uh, victoria as the you know literally the best science state in the country by a country mile suck that new south wales you <laughs> uh, love you people for listening up there but uh we've we've got more um and these two so look uh, good luck with the ongoing work and and we'll get you back and we'll talk a bit more about this um outreach program and so forth and how it's gone i really want to see how the kids you know because the kids will tell you straight up karen i'm <laughs> telling you haven't done a lot of them uh they will tell you if they love you or hate you and there is no there is no free hugs so good luck with that thanks for coming in Thanks very much. Uh, you've been listening to Einstein and Go-Go, folks. Uh, thank you, Lyndon, Catherine, and Elena for being in. It's great to see you guys. And Liv's been doing our Twitter feed over there and taking all our phone calls. I'm Dr. Shane. Until next week, uh, we're going to leave you with the team from Eat It. Have a great Sunday, and thanks for listening to Triple R. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.